Welcome to the first episode of Intriguing Interviews. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio journey. The inspiration for this podcast and these interviews goes back at least 17 years, to well before the word podcast existed, back when car stereos played cassette tapes and phones were for talking. The story behind this podcast involves a grumpy old man who reluctantly saved my life, a long drive with a private detective, and my exploits sleeping with dozens of complete strangers. Let me take you back to February 11th of 2003. I'm 17 years old and standing by the side of Highway 1 on the coast of Oregon. As I stand with my thumb out, a shiny red SUV pulls over. I run to it and see a couple inside who are in their 40s, nicely dressed and smiling. After exchanging a few pleasantries, I hop in. The husband starts driving and asks me, Can we play a tape for you? I don't know what else to say, so I go, Yeah, sure. His wife grabs a cassette tape, pops it into the stereo, and hits play. Inspirational music comes on, and a man's voice says, Car insurance protects you if you're in a car accident. Health insurance protects you if you need a doctor. Wouldn't it be great if law insurance protected you from lawsuits? I soon realize this cassette tape is an infomercial for a multi-level marketing scheme called prepaid legal. As the tape plays, the three of us in the car don't speak. We just sit awkwardly silent, and listen to the announcer's voice grow more and more excited. There's a huge demand for cheap legal services. You can get in on the ground floor of an amazing opportunity. Listening to this, I wonder what to do. Should I let out an appreciative gasp? Maybe I should say, wow, or oh my. Nothing seems right, so I keep my mouth shut and listen as a woman exclaims, We've only been doing it six months, but now we're making over $10,000 a month. And what's amazing is, that's just from working part-time. I think to myself, this is crazy. But I also think, hitchhiking is crazy awesome. And the reason I think it's awesome is because I'm finally free from a home that felt like a prison. And this is my first real adventure. I grew up in a small town that sat in a valley in the shadow of Mount Rainier in the Pacific Northwest. And I was homeschooled for my entire childhood Though I use the term homeschooled loosely, really, I was left to my own devices and mostly self-taught. And I lived in a home that was very, very tense. So, especially after about age 10, I spent the majority of my time hidden in my bedroom, just trying to survive until I was old enough to escape. But I yearned for more. I remember at night, I sometimes stood in the alleyway beside our house and looked at the lights of buildings far off in the distance 
and wondered who lived inside them. And I look up at the planes flying across the night sky and imagine all of the people in them and all the cities those people were flying to. And I think of all of the adventures and friends and romance just waiting for me out there. And I longed for it. But I knew those things were out of my grasp. So, until I was old enough to leave home, I loved to at least hear stories about those things that I yearned for. I remember reading a library book called A Hell of a Place to Lose a Cow. It was written by a guy who had hitchhiked across the country when he was in college and tried to do it again decades later. It was one of several stories I read and heard that made me think, hitchhiking sounds like a guaranteed way to find adventure. It's the perfect way to see the world, meet people, and build up my social skills. So I waited for years as these ideas percolated inside of me, until finally, when I was 17, I left home. I did not run away. Oh no. I openly told my family that I was leaving to hitchhike around the country. And then, on February 10th of 2003, I began hitchhiking south on Interstate 5 without a penny in my pocket. And that's how, within 24 hours, I wound up in the back seat of a shiny red SUV with a couple who wanted me to invest in a multi-level marketing scheme. After about 20 minutes, the tape finishes and the husband stops the car on the roadside. Because if I'm not listening to a sales pitch, he isn't driving. Besides, it's time for them to go in for the kill. The wife looks back at me, grins, and says, What do you think? Want to sign up? I say, It sounds like a nice program. Really great stuff. But I'm hitchhiking. The husband smiles at me. It's the chance of a lifetime. You'll need to settle down and earn money eventually. With this, you can earn lots and lots of money. I nod and say, I'm sure you're right. I just don't think it's right for me. I'm sorry, but thank you for the ride. As I get out, they give me a look that says, boy, you've missed a big opportunity. Then they drive off. It was weird, but it was also great because it was an adventure and I was finally the one living the story. That was only the beginning. I met lots of fascinating people who didn't try to sell me anything. In California, I rode for three hours with a private investigator, a really friendly Asian guy. While we drove along, he called his fiance on his cell phone and said, honey, you'll never guess what I'm doing. I'm driving on the highway with a hitchhiker. Then he held the phone up toward me and said, say hello. So I said, hi, nice to meet you. It was the start of a very unique and wonderful ride. The next night on Valentine's Day at about 12.30 a.m. in downtown Los Angeles, a surly old man named Fred probably saved my life by getting me out of a bad neighborhood where, he said, if I stayed, my throat would be cut by morning. Admittedly, the entire time he was saving my life, he kept calling me a foolish idiot without a lick of common sense, but 
he had a good point. However, I wasn't really worried about my safety for two reasons. First, I was naively certain that nobody would ever hurt me. Second, I felt I had missed out on the first 17 years of my life. And you can only fear losing your life once you have one. years after hitchhiking, I discovered hostels, which are cheap, dorm-like places for travelers to stay. So I drove around the U.S. and stayed in hostels, where I met people from England, Japan, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, and many other countries. A few times, I teamed up with people I'd just met, and we drove hundreds or even thousands of miles together. At the same time that I discovered hostels, I discovered a website called Couchsurfing.com. It allows you to contact people virtually anywhere in the world and ask to stay in their home. So I wound up sleeping in a couple dozen strangers' homes for anywhere from a single night to a full week. It was hitchhiking taken to the next level. Now, hitchhiking and hostels and couch surfing all share something in common. There's something special when you enter into the car or enter into the home or enter into the life of a complete stranger. There's a kind of magic to it. And we're going to dip into that magic with this podcast. This is audio hitchhiking. We'll get to meet amazing people, step into their lives, and hear their most interesting stories. Along the way, we'll learn fascinating ideas that can enrich our lives. That's why I'm excited to start today with Matthew Dix. Matt is an award-winning storyteller. He's won the Moth's live storytelling competitions over 50 times. In fact, he literally wrote the book on how to tell stories, which is called Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. Not surprisingly, Matt is also an internationally best-selling author, and his five novels have been published in 26 languages. Now, I recorded this interview with Matt after recording interviews with several other people that you'll get to hear in later episodes. But I chose to start with Matt because he is a perfect example of the power of storytelling and what I want this podcast to offer you. He'll give you two things that I hope you'll find in every episode. Number one, you'll get to hear powerful, intimate, memorable stories. Matt has led a movie-worthy life. He's died twice been arrested for a crime he didn't commit, was robbed at gunpoint, and he was a stripper at McDonald's. How many people can say that? Number two, not only will you get to hear entertaining stories that give you a glimpse into his life, you'll get to learn. Matt will offer you deep insights into why storytelling is so powerful and how you can use it in your life to enjoy deeper, more satisfying relationships. Plus, he'll share secrets of how you can become a more captivating storyteller. So, you're in for a treat. Without further ado, here's my interview with master storyteller, Matthew Dix. So, I 
was really excited. My my first question, I really want to know this. I, I have not found the answer anywhere. You had a pet raccoon when you were a child. And I want to know about this. What is the story behind this? <laughs> this does not come up very often. That's great. Uh, I had a pet raccoon. His name was Racket. Uh, when I was a kid, my father and a couple other guys were out chopping down a tree for firewood. And they didn't realize... They didn't realize it at the time, but the tree that they chopped down had a raccoon's nest in it. And the mother raccoon died when the tree fell. But uh, two or three of the babies survived the survived the fall. And so my father ended up taking one home. And we ended up raising that raccoon for, I think, what amounted to about two years. And it was great. The raccoon loved me. Uh, I was the only one he loved, really. You know, he used to bite my brother terribly, and he hated my sister. Wow. And raccoons, you can't keep them really in a cage because they have hands, like just like people. And so no matter what you sort of put them in, and they, they find a way out. And so my father built this cage of chicken wire, but the, the raccoon would get out all the time, and then it would tear the screens in our house apart. So he could get into the house, and then I'd find him in my bed in the morning, sleeping alongside. <laughs> so I just adored that, you know. I mean, I think it made my parents crazy, but but I thought it was great. And then eventually, the raccoon got so big that it, you know, became a wild animal essentially. Yeah. And my parents told me that one day, Racket escaped and ran off into the woods. Uh huh. And later, I learned that one day, my parents decided that this is a wild animal and it's going to hurt someone soon, so we need to take it into the woods. And so that was the end of Racket. <laughs> That's too bad. It sounds like a, a child's dream come true. Yeah, it was pretty great. How old were you when you <laughs> found out that they had actually let him go? Well, you know, I grew up on this horse farm, but it was no longer a horse farm. When my parents got divorced, my father, who was the cowboy, left the home with the horses. And so I grew up sort of with a barn and with a riding ring and all these things, but no horses. But there was a day when I saw a raccoon in the barn sort of, you know, scrounging around for oats from from before when we had the horses. And I thought it was Racket. And I went and told my parents, I said, I think Racket's in the barn. And they explained to me that it's entirely possible that Racket still comes around the house looking for food when he's hungry because he feels safe here. And then they admitted to me that they had released him because he was too large. Essentially, they were saying, don't go near him. He's no longer a pet. <laughs> just because he might be in the barn doesn't mean you should go near him. So it's just like maybe a six months or a year later than when I saw what was probably Racket and uh, mentioned it to my parents. Interesting. And so I, I've not heard you really talk about uh, that place that you grew up. How long did you live there? I lived there all my life. Yeah, just about. It was a home that my grandparents lived in. And then my grandparents moved next door to the house next door and sold the house to my father. And he quickly turned it into a horse farm. He was very much a cowboy in every sense of the word. And so we had a barn that he built with his hands and wow. a riding ring and all the things that you would expect of a of a cowboy and a blacksmith and a the guy who broke the horse that couldn't be broken. That was my father. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it was great until the parents got divorced and then all that went away. And that was when you were five years old? No, I was older. Maybe seven, seven to eight in between there. You know, I found out that my... My parents were divorcing. My mother essentially left my father for another man, and that man moved into our home immediately. Yeah, and uh, you've said that 
that basically was a really bad relationship. Like, um, I, yes, <laughs> uh, and it did not go well. <laughs> so I, I've actually, uh, even though I've, I'm familiar with a lot of your stories, I've never really heard one about your stepfather. And I, like, I've heard you say he was a horrible man, but do you have an example of what he was like? Well, I mean, the worst thing he ever did was really to my mother. You know, my mother was a pharmacist in the hospital where she met uh, my stepfather, the, you know, the man she eventually fell in love with. And while she was in the pharmacy, she was pushing a cart one day and she slipped a disc in her back. It was just a heavy cart she was pushing. And that caused her to slip, success, slip successive discs. Mm -hmm. Essentially, her back fell apart on her. Wow. And as a result, she couldn't work anymore. Eventually, she went on disability. And so every month, she would get a disability check. And I knew about it because it was a big deal. It was, you know, her way of, you know, providing for the family. Yeah. But all through my childhood, my stepfather would uh, ask about maybe taking a lump sum payment and opening some kind of a business or, you know, doing something with the money. And she always said no. She always said it's too important that the security of the disability check was what she wanted. But then when I was out of the house, I got kicked out when I was 18. My stepfather essentially said, you're moving out at 18 and taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I left. And about a year later, my stepfather lost his job. He was a psychiatric social worker. And when he lost his job, he finally convinced my mother to take that lump sum payment. And he invested the money in a multi-level marketing skincare Ooh. company. Yeah. Ouch. It was terrible. And he bought like two brand new cars because he said you have to have the the look of success in order to be successful, all this nonsense. And essentially what he stopped, what he did was he stopped paying the mortgage on the house and didn't tell my mother. She was a person who didn't understand the finances, didn't take care of it, had put it all in the hands of my stepfather. And he went nine months without paying the mortgage and then left a note on the counter one day saying, you've got one more month and have a nice life. And so my mother lost the house that my grandparents lived in and my father lived in and they had the barn in the back that he built with his own hands. And just like that, overnight, my mother and my sister were desperately seeking a place to live. That is so sad. Yeah, it was terrible. And I mean, that's the, probably the worst thing he did because it, it just ruined, in a lot of ways, my mother's life. The rest of her life was fairly miserable and it didn't do anything for our family. So it was a, it was a disastrous situation. But that was one of many, many things that made him not the most wonderful person in the world. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you don't really need many other examples like that one will do. Um. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't good for my brother or my sister or myself as well. My sister especially had a bad time of it. So being the youngest, she had to deal with him the longest. And, yeah. you know, I escaped by getting a job at McDonald's when I was 16 and rising to the level of manager at 17 while I was still in high school. So when I got kicked out, I had a place to go. At least I found, you know, I found a place to live with my buddy, Benji, who was going to college at the time. So I had a job, you know, I, we were poor as poor could be, but at least I had a roof over my head and my brother joined the military. So that was his escape. He went off to the army, but my sister had a year of high school left when they lost the house. And that was really not a great situation for her in any way. Yeah. Curious how she coped with it, how she moved on. Well, she's good today. She has a she has a family and uh, a home, but you know she had a very tough time. There were 
there were nights when she was sleeping under a park bench because she had no place to be. And, you know, she got pregnant at 18 because, you know, without any family support, essentially the boyfriend moved in with my mother and my sister in a terrible place to live. And, you know, it, it was a very hard road for a long time for her. She got hit by a car on a highway about 15 years ago and nearly died. Wow. You know, she still has injuries from that accident. So she hasn't had the easiest life. I'm proud of her. She's actually made a life for herself. She writes for a living now, and she's uh, got a man in her life who she loves, and they, they're engaged to be married. So so it's she has some stability now, but it took a long time. Whew. Yeah. Go, uh, going, going back, so you said you grew up in uh, relative poverty. Uh, I think a good story about that is about the that kind of shows that is is the lemonade stand story could you could you describe your <laughs> your lemonade stand when you were a kid yeah so i started a lemonade stand uh looking for money really you know needing money uh, i was afraid that something bad was going to happen when we were kids like the furnace would break and we would be cold for six months it would be terrible you know and there'd be no money to repair the furnace or there would just uh-huh. There would be times when there was like not a lot of food and dinner was something my mother called grub, which was baked beans and whatever else she could put in the pot over the course of the week. I was kind of for a second there expecting literal grubs. I was like, <laughs> really going no. back to nature. <laughs> no, it was not that bad, but it was bad <laughs> in that like you'd ask, you'd want to have your friend over for dinner and you'd ask your mother what's for dinner and she'd say grub and you'd be like, I can't have my friend come over if we're having grub, could we at least call it something different, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I started a lemonade stand and essentially what happened was the lemonade stand was not great because I was on a a road where people drove by at 40 miles an hour and it was a busy road in terms of traffic, but not in terms of people sort of puttering down the road and looking for lemonade. So I wasn't making a lot of money and I really, I wanted the money. I wanted the safety of it. And eventually, one day, someone came by, and I had my brother's Star Wars figures outside, and the kids saw one of the Star Wars figures. It was it was one of the um, one of the bounty hunters who was sort of like very obscure, but my brother happened to have him. He had some Star Wars characters, and this was this was back when like Star Wars was like I mean it's big now, but it was like at its sort of it just rocketed into the spotlight. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, it was like 1985, let's say. The Empire Strikes Back was just out. I think it was a Bosque, if I remember right. Who's, there's a moment in The Empire Strikes Back where they sort of just pan over all the all of the bounty hunters looking for Han Solo. And they only get names because be, they become toys. In the movie, they don't actually have names. <laughs> uh, but this kid saw this, this hard-to-find bounty hunter. And essentially what happened is I sold it to the kid. I sold my brother's toy to make money. Uh, because it turned out kids wanted Star Wars figures. And so I started selling my brother's Star Wars figures at the lemonade stand. And eventually I sold his twin pod cloud car. Uh, wow. And <laughs> then, you know, I was selling my sister's uh, dresses for her dolls too. She had Barbie dolls. <laughs> like I just started selling all the toys out from underneath my brother and sister without them really knowing about it. And uh, my grandfather, like I said, lived next door. And we would have picnics on Sundays, and I would take food from the picnic and sell it at the lemonade stand. So you would just kind of slip it, like you know, you'd be like that that lady at the restaurant who slips the rolls into your purse, like that kind of thing. Yeah, except it was just I had to walk down the hill. 
from you know from one house to the other. So I'd sell his barbecue chicken and you know the potato salad and things like that, and people would buy it. And so you know I managed to earn over the course of a summer one hundred dollars, which was an enormous amount of money yeah. for me. And, and back then, even more. Like it just it felt like to me in my you know whatever thirteen year old head, it felt like now when the family has an emergency. I will be able to take care of the family because now I have money. Yeah. You know, it was never for me. It was never to buy something for myself. It was just to be safe at last. Yeah. Then what, and I put it in my Boy Scout wallet, this blue Boy Scout wallet I had. I put it under my pillow. That's where it was going to be safe. And then one day I went in my bedroom and the pillow was pushed aside and the wallet was gone. And I knew immediately what it was. It was uh, Pac-Man, my dog, who <laughs> ate everything. <laughs> and Hence I, the name. I knew that, yeah, well, yeah, my mother's favorite video game was Pac-Man. So uh, the dog got named after my mother's favorite video game. And I knew some of the dollar bills smelled like the barbecue sauce from my grandfather's picnic. And that surely attracted the dog's attention. <laughs> and uh, I panicked. I, it was $100. It felt like an entire treasure. Yeah. And I eventually found the torn up bits of the wallet up in the back field at my grandfather's house. And some money, just a few dollar bills float, floating around and the rest was gone. It was lost forever. And I just I cried and cried. I remember my mother was so upset with me for being so upset, you know, she, she wanted me to like, to get over it, get over this. It's a bad thing that happened. She didn't know how much money it was either. And, you know, I didn't tell everyone that I had sold everybody's stuff for money. Probably wise. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to tell her, I wasn't crying about the loss of the money. I was crying about the fact that the next time the furnace breaks, I'm going to be cold again, you know, or the next time we don't have money to fix the car, I'm going to have to, you know, walk three miles to Boy Scouts again. I was just I was crying over the fact that I had lost our safety net or what I perceived to be our safety net. Yeah. yeah that was a, it was a lousy time. Well, I know you, you and your family kind of coped with that lousy time in kind of an interesting way. So, uh, you had, um, kids in and, in and out of the house, um, including one named Johnson and Johnson. Uh, could you, could you, could you d describe him? Like d what, what was he like? <laughs> well, it's Johnson Johnson, not Johnson and Johnson. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that was a dumb mistake. That's okay. Uh, well, I mean, he was named probably after Johnson and Johnson's baby powder. So uh, <laughs> my stepfather was a psychiatric social worker, and he worked with kids at a hospital. And on the weekends, if there was no place to sort of put a kid, sometimes they would come to our house. And I had a mattress underneath my bed and we'd pull it out and there'd be random kids sleeping next to me from time to time. And for whatever reason, I think when I was maybe six or seven, I had an imaginary friend and uh, his name was Johnson Johnson. My mother said probably named after Johnson and Johnson's baby powder. And he was as real to me as anyone in the world. I, I just thought he was one of these kids that Neil had brought home and had stayed with us for a while, which some of the kids did. They stayed with us longer than, you know, just the weekend. Uh -huh. And I had Johnson Johnson for a very long time in my life. And then and then he went away, as imaginary friends do. But I didn't realize when he went away that he went away as an imaginary friend. I just figured he wasn't there anymore. He had found a home. And it wasn't until I was like 10 or 11, I wanted to go back to Roger Williams Zoo in Providence and 
the way I would get my mother to let me do things is I would tell her stories about the last time we were there and I'd sort of embellish on the enjoyment that I had. And so I was telling her a story about going to the zoo and that the zoo had these um, oriental gardens with these islands connected by bridges. And, uh, you know, it was lovely. And I told her, I said, you know, I remember playing in the gardens with Johnson Johnson going between the islands. And she said to me, Matt, you know, Johnson Johnson was your imaginary friend, right? And I said, no, Johnson Johnson, the kid that used to live with us. And she said, no, that was your imaginary friend. And we went back and forth on that for quite a while. <laughs> Both of you thinking the other crazy. Yeah, exactly. And then finally she called uh, my sister Kelly into the room and she said, Kelly, Johnson Johnson? And Kelly said, yeah, Matt's imaginary friend. And I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was astounding to me. I just... And then it made sense because I started thinking about Johnson Johnson and I thought like, oh, I used to bring him to school, but I'd leave him in the bathroom and he would wait there for me. <laughs> but like, you don't think that until you have to, you know, until you have to like really analyze it. But to this day, there are times when I stumble upon moments in my childhood where Johnson Johnson was there and I sort of have to remind myself that he wasn't really there. You know, I always compare it to if you've seen the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, you know, it's a movie about a guy who is trying to erase the memories of the girlfriend who he has broken up with so it doesn't hurt him anymore. Yeah. And that's sort of what I've had to do with Johnson Johnson. I've had to go back and scrub him out of memories where he existed because he didn't really exist. Like crazy, you know, but huh. but that's how I worked. It, it, it ended up being a book that I wrote a novel based upon that idea that imaginary friends might be real after all. And, you know, it's been my most successful book to date. <laughs> it's an international bestseller. So I got something good out of it in the end. Yeah. And though when you first came up with the idea, you thought it was kind of like you didn't think it was going to work. Is that right? Oh, I thought it was a stupid idea. <laughs> uh, it was an idea given to me by a student teacher. We were on a playground one day watching a, a fifth grade boy talk to a tree. <laughs> she said, why is that boy talking to a tree? <laughs> And I didn't want to like crush her spirit and tell her how stupid they can be sometimes. So I said, well, maybe he's talking to his imaginary friend. And I ended up telling her about Johnson Johnson. And she said, that'd be a great book. Imagine that, an imaginary friend who's real. And I thought, that's a terrible idea. But I write every idea down that I get, whether it's mine or someone else's on a list. And, you know, I, th I acknowledged it could be a book, but probably not something I would ever write. But I put it on the list. And when it came time to choose my next book, my agent and my wife, they make the choice for me. And so I sent all the ideas to them and they both chose that as the book they thought I should write next. I, I did not want to write it at first, but it all worked out. You're a wise man listening to the women in your life. I have learned that when you listen to women and do what they tell you to do, your life <laughs> turns out better. It just took me way too long to figure that out. <laughs> Truer words never spoken. Why do you think that you had Johnson Johnson? Why, why do you feel he was like so real for you and, and so important for, for so long? Yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, I think probably what happened was that I was a kid growing up with a brother and a sister, and at that time, a stepbrother and a stepsister. Uh, my stepfather had two kids also. But in many, many ways, we were on our own a lot. And I often felt the burden of being in charge of these four younger kids. Mm -hmm. You know, we would go out at eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, and other than coming in for lunch, you just never came back inside the house. 
And part of the burden was keeping them entertained. Like, what are we going to do next? They just turned to me all the time and said, what are we going to do next? And a part of it was keeping them safe because, you know, I was growing up in the 80s and, you know, it was it was not like it is today. Yeah. <laughs> we would just swim in ponds, you know, with no adults around. It's time to swim in the pond. So I had a lot of responsibility at a very young age. And I think probably what I needed was someone to sort of just turn to, you know, someone who was my age, at least, you know, in my imagination, he was about my age, so that I could feel a little less alone with the responsibility that I had. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That's a guess, though. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I was just maybe I was just a little crazy. You know, I know lots of kids have imaginary friends, and some of them are very real to kids. So I'm sure there are kids that feel the same way. I had that weird situation where I had strange kids in my house all the time. So maybe maybe it was just a combination of that that made it all happen. It's interesting. I remember when I was a kid, and I, I never had an imaginary friend, but I I know it was very common. I haven't seen that around much. I don't, I don't, I haven't noticed many children seeming to have imaginary friends. Oh no, it's still very common. As an elementary school teacher, I can tell you it's very common. My daughter had imaginary friends. She had a whole cast of characters. Nice. And she spoke to, she spoke about them like they were absolutely real. Huh. And did she, uh, as she grew up, did she, uh, remember any of them as real or did she know they were, they were just imaginary? No, she knows now that they were imaginary. I don't know if like when she was five and she was talking about them, I don't know if she really believed they were real. I think she believed that they were her friends. Yeah. But I think she probably would have told you that they weren't human in the same way she was. They were <laughs> absolutely her friends. You know, I think that's the way she viewed it. That sounds <laughs> They were all, because it's my daughter, they were all like, you know, different in every way. Like one was disabled and in a wheelchair. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, one was like, you know, she was six, but she already knew that she was gay. Wow. You know, this is my daughter. <laughs> yeah. One was an Inuit. Like, <laughs> my daughter is a hyper feminist and very into. Uh, social issues, you know, she's 10, but uh, she just, <laughs> the things she talks about astound me on a daily basis. That's amazing. Yeah, actually, I, I read on your blog that uh, you saw your kids playing and like, rather than playing cops and robbers, they were like, working for equal rights within the school system or something like that. Yes, right. It's ridiculous. Like, she comes down and says things to me like, Daddy, do you know who Madam CJ Walker is? And I say, I've heard the name before. And she gets so angry at me. You know, she <laughs> says, she's the first American woman to make a million dollars on her own. And she was African-American. How do you not know who she is? And I wow. was like, I am never, never going to be good enough for this girl. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds amazing. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's a great girl. So, so going back to... Uh, obviously a very challenging childhood and you kind of got your three freedom through McDonald's, but there were, you know, there were some challenges along the way. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. How, how about, how about starting with, uh, Christmas of 1988? Oh yes. Uh, well, December 23rd, uh, two days before Christmas, I am, um, shopping for friends for Christmas presents. Uh, I'm a manager at McDonald's at the time, which is crazy. I'm a senior in high school. I'm working 50 to 60 hours a week. I still have my time slips. My wife can't believe it when she when I showed them to her. She was like, how were you working like overtime <laughs> while you were going to high school? Which is interesting because sometimes I feel like you describe yourself as not being 
driven or or having much drive at the time, but it sounds like you were insanely driven at the time. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I tell people is that I was driven in terms of where I thought something could take me. I was realistic about things. So in school, I was very driven when I cared about the subject because I loved to learn. Mm -hmm. But because I knew I was getting thrown out of the house at 18, I knew I wasn't going to college. So if I was in a class and I didn't care about the subject, I didn't see any purpose in investing myself fully in that class because the grades didn't matter because college was not ever something I was going to get to. Yeah. I bet a lot of kids feel that way. Yeah. But so like I loved my French teacher. So I studied French for four years, which no one had ever done in my school up to that point. Hmm. You know, there was three years of French and I developed an independent study for my fourth year. I ended up in class with my brother uh, (laughs) and I was sort of like, I was sort of like the TA, you know, I became the guy who was tutoring the third year French students as a fourth year French student. I won the French award, Nice, you know, but that was, that was only because I liked the teacher, you know, the teacher inspired me. Yeah you know, or, or geography was something that always interested me. So I really cared about that class, but you know, math was not something I cared a lot about. So I scraped by in math. I just scraped by in math. Which seems like a reasonable decision. Cause now, you know, now you're a writer, like the, the stuff you would have been studying with math is not an intrinsic part of your life. Right. Although I love math now today, ah. I, I'm fascinated with math. Yeah. I, I do a lot with uh, finance and I, I follow uh, the stock market very closely. I do a lot with math, but at the time I, no one told me essentially what this was going to do for me. I was very practical in my, in my willingness to engage in something. So when I got to McDonald's, I found people who were willing to celebrate my achievements. Yeah. I discovered that, Hey, I can do all of these things really well. I, I'm good at talking. So I'm great at dealing with customers and I'm really habit forming, you know, I form habits quickly and McDonald's is all about sort of no wasted steps and you have to think fast. It's an incredibly hard job. I always say that if I owned a Fortune 500 company, I would travel the world looking for the best McDonald's managers and I would hire them for my company regardless of what I was doing because it is an incredibly difficult job. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is manage a McDonald's restaurant. Well, I believe uh, I I read at some point that McDonald's produces the most self-made millionaires of of any of any place something like that really yeah that would not surprise me yeah the, some of the people i admire most in my life or who i have admired most in my life have been people i've worked with at mcdonald's it just it's just a great place to be able to be successful and so yeah. i went there and i was very good at the job and they acknowledged me and i rose the ranks quickly and it was nice to be in a place where people respected what I was doing. So I became very driven. And that's how I became a manager at such a young age. And Mm -hmm. I would show up at work at three o'clock in the afternoon and work till 11 at night. And I would work on the weekends for 10 hours or 12 hours, you know, a day. (laughs) And I was just good at it. I also found a bunch of new people. You know, I grew up in a tiny little town. My class was less than 100 kids altogether. And I was with them all my life. So it was the same 100 kids all the way through school. But then I went to a new town and I was working with all these new people and I was finding people who were sort of more closely aligned, you know, in terms of interests and personalities. It was just, it was like my college, I guess. It was a sad, (laughs) grease-filled college. (laughs) But for me, it was great. And uh, 
and you know, I made my best friends in my life working that job, but friends who are still my friends today. And so on December 23rd, I was shopping uh, for them, buying Christmas presents. It was the first time I'd ever been shopping in my life. I wow. never had money before, but I, I saved money all fall and I went Christmas shopping and I piled all the presents into my car and I had to get home. I had to I had to get the presents put away. I had bought a betta fish for my friend Pat and it was cold that day. It was starting to snow. I needed to get the fish out of the car <laughs> and I had a shift at McDonald's that later that day and I had to get home, get my McDonald's uniform and get back to work. And I was just running late because I had never shopped before. I didn't understand the, what a pain in the ass it can be. <laughs> and so driving home in my mother's 1976 Datsun B210, this tiny little car filled with presents, I went up the front of a hill on a snowy afternoon. And as I came down the other side of the hill, that car slid into the opposite lane and I hit a Mercedes Benz head on. And uh, it didn't go well for me. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, although I wore a seatbelt always. I had chosen the worst day of my life to not put that seatbelt on. Did you just forget? Yeah, I was too excited about the shopping, I think, and too much in a rush to get home to get my uniform. I'm a person who's never late for anything, and even the prospect of being late upsets me. So I was just in another place mentally, and so and so I uh, so I wasn't prepared for my head-on collision that day. So I went through the windshield. Uh, I caught the steering wheel on the way by. It knocked all of the bottom row of my teeth out of my mouth. Ow. And then um, my head went through the windshield, but my legs came forward and they got embedded in the air conditioning unit, one on the right side. And the left leg actually hit the post for the emergency brake release. It knocked the plastic handle off, but the, the metal post went right through my knee. It skewered my knee. And Oof. yeah, it was terrible. My chest hit the steering wheel and broke ribs, knocked all the air out of my body. But, you know, shock is a thing that kills people. You know, shock will ultimately kill you. Yeah. But it also takes away all the pain and all the fear. Uh -huh. So my head was stuck in a windshield and my legs were stuck in a dashboard. And honestly, I felt no pain. And I, I was pretty calm considering what was happening. You know, I was terrified that the bottom row of my teeth were floating around in my mouth. That was the thing that bothered me the most. I think that would scare anyone. Yeah, it was that was the bad part. But I managed to pull my head out of the, the dash, out of the windshield and pull my legs out of the dashboard. I actually got myself out of the car. Uh, I was standing beside it when I saw the woman from the Mercedes come up to me. She took one look at me. She was completely unharmed. Huge car, seatbelt, completely unharmed. But she looks at me, she vomits and passes out. Eventually, a, a pickup truck, an orange pickup truck shows up with kids in the back of the pickup, you know, sort of piled in the back. They're all jumping out of the car and running over to me. And a kid just about my age uh, grabs me by my jean jacket and lays me down in the mud and the snow on the side of the road. And, and then he looks me over and then he gets really close to my ear and he whispers, dude, you're fucked. <laughs> Which was absolutely correct. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He was a smart kid. He was. I mean, they were all kind of smart. A girl was in the, the pickup truck. She saw me and she started screaming and she never stopped screaming. She, they moved her way up the road and she just couldn't stop screaming. Wow. And a kid got my head in his lap and uh, he was telling me that it was going to be okay because Jesus was going to be in my life soon and I would see Jesus and all of my dead relatives and I would be in heaven and everything would be fine, uh, which was terrifying. Yeah. We're, we're, I'm curious actually how that felt. Were you religious 
or that that you know what what were you thinking when you heard that I, I was not religious i've been a person who has wanted to believe in god all his life but can't seem to find the capacity for faith so no that was terrifying to me yeah and the kid wasn't wrong you know not entirely cuz I end up in the back of an ambulance, and before they're even even able to take off, my heart stops beating and I stop breathing, and they have to use CPR to get me back. So for about a minute, I was gone. So those kids were not wrong in their assessment of my medical situation. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, during that minute, did you see Jesus and all your relatives is the question? No, sadly, no. Now, the, the truth is, you know, it's the second time in my life that I've actually had paramedics use CPR to bring me back to life. Oddly and unfortunately. Okay. But both times, what happens is you close your eyes. And then in the case of the car accident, I open my eyes and there's a woman straddling my chest, pounding, pounding on it. And there's a guy forcing a clear plastic tube down my throat. So I didn't know that I was dying, you know, until I was told much later that I had died. I wasn't told until three days later. Really? Yeah, I was complaining about something to a nurse. Uh, three days later, the day after Christmas. And she said, stop complaining. You're lucky to be here. And I said, I know. And she said, no, you're really lucky to be here. You were dead, boy. And I said, what do you mean I was dead? (laughs) And she said, nobody told you. And I don't know if she should have told me, but she said, you know, for a minute, you were gone. We didn't think you were going to come back when I, you know, there was, people don't come back from that. You don't know how lucky you are. (laughs) And I'm sitting there going, it already happened to me once when I was 12. So, you know, so you don't know. So I didn't see any lights and I didn't see any. Maybe because your name rhymes with cat, you actually have nine lives. lives. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, whatever it is. It's weird because, you know, when I tell stories about my life, I always try to point out to people, I really can't tell stories about the near-death experiences I've had. I tell stories in which the near-death experiences happen, but the story's never about that because you have to tell stories about moments where you sort of had a significant sort of epiphany or a realization or you changed in some way or you see the world in a new way. But both of the times that I die, I just close my eyes and then I wake up later and am told that I was dead. There's no sort of moment where I know I'm going, you know, there's yeah. no awareness that I'm about to die. So you can't have a moment if you don't know what's about to happen. So, so what is the moment uh, or epiphany for, for this where you, so you've, you've just been brought back to life? Oh, right. So I'm brought back to life. I'm brought to the emergency room and doctors and nurses are working on me like crazy. You know, they're pulling hundreds of pieces of glass out of my forehead and there's people working on my knees because they need surgery. And I remember I hear one of the nurses say that surgeons are hard to come by because it's December 23rd. And they don't know who I am when I get there because they cut all my clothes off at the accident scene and lost my wallet in the process. Uh-huh. So I have to give a nurse my phone number. And when I'm giving her my phone number, I ask her to call McDonald's because I'm supposed to be at work <laughs> and I'm worried, <laughs> you know, and she thinks I'm crazy, which I probably am. You know, she knows that I was dead <laughs> a little while ago. You don't know that. You just know you're late for your shift. I know that's exactly right. I just think I'm late for my shift and Linda doesn't do well in the drive through if she's on her own. I need to be there for her <laughs> or somebody else. And she agrees to actually call McDonald's. She goes away frustrated, but she says, yes, I'll call. And I'm waiting for surgery in this emergency room while they're trying to keep me alive. And my parents don't show up. And I start to think like, where the hell are my parents? And then I can see it on the nurses' faces. I realize that they're wondering where the hell is my parents as well. And I find out much later that when the 
when the nurse calls my home to tell my parents what's happened, she says that I'm in stable condition. So my stepfather decides to go check on the car before he comes to check on me. So I don't get to see my parents before I'm rolled into surgery that day. And your mother just goes along with him? Yeah, I guess. You know, my mom was depressed for most of her life and sort of not always the most capable person to make these decisions. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm lying in the emergency room just feeling utterly alone and lost, you know, like nobody cares about me. But in the end, I'm not alone because that nurse calls McDonald's and the manager on duty tells my friends who are working what has happened. And then an old-fashioned phone tree begins with friends calling friends and people just leave the work, leave McDonald's and come to the hospital. And I'm lying in the emergency room when I start to hear them because they're teenagers and they make a lot of noise. And that waiting room just outside of the emergency room, it fills up with my friends with you know 15 and 16 and 17-year-old kids. And my best friend, Benji, who I had been buying presents for that day, all of my friends who had been buying presents for that day, they're all in the waiting room uh, waiting for me. And when the nurses realize that I don't get to see my parents, that they're not going to make it in time, they let my friends stand in the doorway of the emergency room. They prop these double doors open and they roll my bed so that I can see them. And the boys say these incredibly inappropriate things to make me laugh (laughs) because that's who they are. Uh, And the girls tell me they love me and I hear them chanting my name as I'm rolled into surgery that day. So it's it's not a story about my near death. In fact, when that story plays on the radio, the moth will play it occasionally. Uh, I never I get emails all the time about it, all the time, and no one has ever written to me and said I liked your story about the time you died. It's always I like the story about the time your friend showed up in the emergency room. Yeah, because it stops being about my death. In fact, nobody even cares that I die in the story. They kind of forget about that. It's all about what happens after. Well, I mean, like even because I've I've heard that story several times now but it still gets me at the end like like when you die like i mean that's you know that's uh, an interesting part of the story but when your friends show up and they're like there for you when you're when your parents are not it just like it is so moving and emotional and no matter how many times you hear it you're like wow that's just so powerful yeah i tell that story in my workshops a lot because it has a lot of good teaching points and so it's excellent to use as a model for teaching storytelling. So I've told that story more than any story I've ever told. It's sort of my signature story. If you had to pick a story that I am known for, that is the one. So I've told it hundreds of times, and every time I tell it, I become emotional. It just, it turns out to be one of the most important moments of my life, and it's ridiculous that you can tell a story 400 times (laughs) and you still become emotional. Even if you're standing in like a classroom at one o'clock in the afternoon in front of 12 people, I still become emotional. But that's just the, that's the truth of storytelling. Yeah. Well, so you're a best-selling novelist and you're also, you're a teacher. When did you know that you wanted to both be a storyteller or a novelist? And when did you know that you wanted to be a, a teacher? Was there kind of a, a moment when you understood that when you were young? Did you just always want to be that way? Yeah. You know, from a young age, I mean, from, I guess, when I was maybe 10 or 11, I used to tell people that I want to write for a living and teach for pleasure. That's what I used to say all the time, uh, which essentially means I wanted to be a successful writer and I wanted to be a teacher who no one 
bothered. I get to do whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Every teacher's dream. Right. I think I wanted to be a teacher because it was a safe place for me. School was always the place I wanted to get to. You know, I wanted to get out of the house and away from my stepfather and my messy family. And also, I didn't know a lot when I was a kid. You know, the guidance counselors, for whatever reason, never came to talk to me. And like, if you would ask me as a senior, like list all the jobs of the world, you know, I probably would have listed 20 jobs. You know, I knew that there were yeah. teachers and doctors and lawyers and firemen, you know, that was it. So, which is probably why we have so many teachers and doctors and lawyers <laughs> is the kids don't know like what else right. there is. Yeah. And, and I, and it's the only job in the world that you get to watch. You watch for 13 years, you watch other people do it. You, you don't actually get to do any other job where you watch people do it for so long. That's true. But I would watch people do it. And I thought that guy's not good. And I know why. And that, that lady's great, and I know why, and I thought, I can do this. I love this. I'm curious, what what things you could, what are a couple things you picked out as like, that's a good good teacher because of this, that's a bad teacher because of this? It was a lot about the connection that teachers made. You know, it was, the teacher was willing to share a bit of their life. The teacher was willing to ask me questions unrelated to French, you know, sort of like, what's going on in your life? You know, what's wrong today, you know, those kinds of things. I realized that humor plays an enormous role in the classroom. If you're funny, you basically are going to be a more effective teacher because once kids are entertained, they're willing to learn. Uh -huh. It's the same reason we pass lessons through movies and TV shows and books because, you know, once you're happy and once you're sort of in with whatever someone's doing, they sort of become putty. I always say, if I tell a story, and I move you in some meaningful way, the next thing that I say, you are likely to believe no matter what it is, because now, you know, now I've found a place in your heart and mind. <laughs> you know, it's what politicians do, essentially, but they do a terrible job of it. Yes. They, they don't storytell in the way they need to. It's why I consult sometimes with politicians who, who figure out that they're not doing a good job, but uh, too often they don't realize it. But I want, so I wanted to be a teacher early on for all those reasons. I wanted to be a writer early on. I, I didn't realize how early. You know, I, I remember always wanting to write in some way. Uh, my aunt recently sent me some some political cartoons that I was writing on Easter when I was nine years old. Ronald Reagan was the president, and I was writing political cartoons <laughs> about Reaganomics. <laughs> I guess I was a lot like my daughter. Now that it occurs to me, <laughs> you were two peas in a pod. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is I'm having a moment of realization right now that my daughter and I are a lot alike. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but I was doing stuff like that and no one was noticing it. That's why she grabbed the, the drawings because she said you were doing these political cartoons about Reaganomics at the age of nine and trying to show them to your parents and the aunts and uncles and nobody cared. Huh. And so she snapped them all up. And, you know, 30 years later, she mailed them back to me. Wow. So, you know, I'm so grateful. Yeah. But, you know, I never thought it was going to be a thing that I could do really. I, you know, I didn't think I'd ever be able to write. And I didn't really think there was a purpose to it. But uh, when I was 17, I was a senior and I was in, a, in an English class, Mr. Campo Piano. He was teaching a satire sometime in November. And I, I didn't really like English class very much. I had to read Ethan Frome, which is just the worst book ever. They just choose the worst books for you to read in high school, yeah. at least back then. You know, I, the Scarlet Letter is terrible. <laughs> and I'm, I'm an English major. You know, I, I eventually make it to college and become an English major, but those are terrible books. <laughs> so I wasn't happy. But then we get introduced to satire, and I discover that this is an opportunity to make fun of people. Like, you can just start to castically tease people. Uh -huh. You know, we read Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels, and I'm amazed that there's a story, but really it's just a story about making fun of people at the time. I loved it. So um, 
So it's one of those moments in my educational career where I become invested. I start writing satire. And I hand in my piece one day at the end of November. And uh, he gives it back to me. And it's got a B minus on it. And I was so mad. Like, I thought I had written the greatest thing that had ever been written in America. I just thought it was brilliant and hilarious. Yeah. And he didn't. He said it was too obvious. It wasn't satire. That's what he wrote. Too obvious. I still have the paper. <laughs> to this of course day. you do. <laughs> and so um, I got angry and I charged to the front of the room and I told him <laughs> what I felt. And, uh, you know, Mr. Campo was uh, short and bald. He still is. He still teaches to this day. And uh, short and bald tends to be one of two varieties. You're either a funny person or an angry person. And uh, Mr. Campo was the angry version of short and bald. So it doesn't take long for him to start arguing back. And pretty soon we're sort of shouting at each other. <laughs> and eventually he tells me to calm down and he says, I'm going to make a deal with you. He says, uh, read, your, read your satire to the class. And if they think that it's satire, then I'll make your grade an A minus instead of a B minus. But if they agree with me that it's too obvious and it's not really satire, I make your B minus into a C minus. Ooh. No, that's great. That's it's a great. It's one of the best teaching lessons I ever got, which is raise the stakes on kids. Yeah, you know, make things tough on them. I've never heard of that. That was that's a great idea doing that. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant, and I mean, it changes my life because I stand. I take the deal, and I stand in front of the class, and it's not a sure thing because I'm in a class with people who are all going to college who don't, you know, who don't associate with me. These are serious students who sit up front and lean forward and take notes, and I'm in the back making jokes. You know, I'm one of those guys. So I read it to the class and uh, I'm like three lines in when the girl who I loved throughout all of high school until I found my high school sweetheart and probably even then thereafter, I still kind of loved her. She laughed. I, I'll never forget it. It's one of the best sounds I've ever heard in my life. She laughs and my heart soars. And then pretty soon everyone's laughing and cheering on what I've written. <laughs> and I finish reading and Mr. Campo says, raise your hand if you think it was satire. And every hand goes up, including his own. Oh, wow. You know, he tells me that on the page, it doesn't read like satire, but he says, you're such a sarcastic person. You bring life to it. Huh. And so on the paper that I have to this day, there's a cross out over the B minus and it's made into an A minus. And that's it. That's the day I become a writer. Three things I like to say happened to me. First is I made a girl laugh. And that is one of the primary reasons I still write to this day to keep my wife laughing at the things I think are amusing to try to desperately hold on to her and convince her she has made a good choice. Uh, <laughs> but I also that day I made a teacher look bad. I made a teacher like I proved a teacher wrong, which you don't really ever get to do. You know, kids like to think they did it, but yeah. I legitimately told Mr. Campo he didn't know what he was talking about and he had to agree with me. He did. But the most important thing was it sounds crazy, but I felt like I had changed my future a little bit. You know, I had made a B minus into an A minus. And for a kid without a future, even though it was nothing, it probably didn't even change my grade for the semester. I just felt like I wrote something and then I spoke to people about it and everything changed after that. Girls laughed at me. Teachers submitted to my authority. You know, I felt <laughs> like, like this is something that I can actually have control over in a life I had no control whatsoever. Yeah. And so I commit myself to writing and, uh, the next Monday I come to school and I start my first business. I write term papers for my classmates. <laughs> my first writing gig. And I get paid for it. And with the money that I earn, I buy my first car. Wow. My own car. Yeah. It's a big deal for me. And without exception and without exaggeration, 
ever since that day in Mr. Campos' class when I was 17, I have written every single day of my life since. That's amazing. Uh, whether it is in journals or whether it's on the internet, you know, I wrote the day both of my children were born. One of them I wrote in the delivery room in between the pushing. Uh, I was writing. <laughs> I wrote on every day of my honeymoon. I wrote on my wedding day. I have had pneumonia four times in the past 10 years. I've written on every day that I was in bed with pneumonia. Wow. I write on vacation. I write everywhere. So it's a lot of writing. <laughs> As my wife says, I produce a lot of content. Um, and not all of it is good. It took a lot of practice. But that was the day I became a writer. I still never thought I'd actually publish anything. And ever, you know, I never thought that would happen. But I knew I wanted to write that I, I knew the feeling of writing something and standing in front of people and reading it and changing minds and making people feel entertained. That was I was all in on that. So wow. So that became my other passion, those two things, teaching and writing. You know, while we're on the topic of, of your writing, so you've written different books that are each have a very unique slant on things. So like you wrote the book, Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, which is from the perspective of an imaginary friend. You just came out with this new book, 21 Truths About Love. And that is a very uniquely written book as well, because it's written in... Uh, actually, is it, is it okay if I read the opening sort of line? Yeah, sure. So it says November 1st, uh, 8.15 p.m. Uh, ways to keep Jill from getting pregnant. Number one, refuse to have sex. Number two, fake orgasm. Number three, wear a condom without her knowledge. Number four, get a vasectomy without her knowledge. And then it says realistic ways to keep Jill from getting pregnant. Number one, fake orgasm. Number two, nothing. I, I mean, it's just, it's a very uniquely written book because it's all in lists. Do you like to have each new book be kind of this challenging new variation? And like, how did you come up with the idea of doing a book all in lists? Well, in terms of the books, it would be much easier if I was just a guy who wrote mysteries. Yeah. You know, because then it would be, here comes the next Matthew Dix mystery, or, you know, here comes the next Matthew Dix suspense novel. Absolutely. Dan Brown, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know what you get if you get a Dan Brown book. Every one of my books is entirely different, which makes it harder to sell. The booksellers, they love my books, but, you know, it's, here comes the next Matthew Dix <laughs> book, but you have no idea what it could be, you know, other than, you know, my agent describes them as quirky, you know, which is, I don't know, there's no quirky section in the bookstore, you know? Uh, and I think Neil Gaiman kind of has the, like, he's become very successful, but he he had the same issue because all, like, his books will be totally different each time. It's, it's hard to, mar he's talked about, it's hard to market them like that. Right, yeah. They're always like, they're funny, but not comedic, you know? So they're like amusing, you know? But they're not <laughs> sort of laugh out loud funny. And they tend to make you cry at the end, but that doesn't really fit with amusing. So... You know, it's a tricky, <laughs> it's tricky, uh, but it's the way I write. And unfortunately, it's the way I have to write now. My agent has told me, she said, you don't get to write um, normal books anymore. I, I pitched an idea that I love as a book. And she said, that is a great idea. And that would have worked uh, 10 years ago with you. But now you write extraordinary books and every book has to be extraordinary in some new way. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Yeah, you have to have no, it's not. It's not that great. <laughs> it's challenging. You know, thankfully, I have a lot of ideas. My skill in writing is really that I have a billion ideas. And so there's always an idea to be found that is different than anyone else's idea. Uh, my list book came about by accident. 
This this was based on lists of yours? No, I'm kidding. No, well, kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go. At least it started that way. Uh, I had a principal for the first 14 years of my teaching career who I loved. He's one of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever met. And then he retired, and that was terrible. Making it worse was the person who came to replace him was a despicable human being, just the worst person, like just terrible, terrible. And ultimately, he he left. And ultimately ended up on the front page of our local newspaper for working in another school and doing the same terrible things he was doing in our school. So he was just rotten to the core. And I couldn't stand it. I was sitting in meetings all the time, listening to a person I didn't respect, and it was making me crazy. Yeah, It was making my colleagues crazy too. You know, they couldn't stand them. And so one day in a meeting, I saw everyone sort of looking sad like I was, and I wrote a list. I wrote a list kind of about him. You know, it was a list of like the stupid things that principals do that make us crazy. <laughs> and I passed that list around the table and everyone smiled and laughed. And it was the first time in a while I'd seen my friends happy in a meeting. So I decided I was going to do this. I'm going to write some lists because it made me look busy. I had to find something that made it look like I was being attentive while somehow <laughs> finding a way to be creative. Yep. Making a list works. It looks like you're taking notes. <laughs> um, so I just started writing lists and passing it around in this notebook that I had and everyone enjoyed it. And then one day I wrote a list and my friend Amy read the list and she smiled, but then she pointed at it and she pointed at me and like gave me a quizzical look. And I realized she was right. Like the list was funny and it was insightful, but it was not something I would ever say. It was like not of me. And I realized, oh, that came from somewhere else. Like, you know, the person who had written that list was underconfident and afraid. And, you know, I am all of the opposite of those things. <laughs> and so I thought that's interesting. And this protagonist sort of popped up in my head, lodged himself there, this guy named Dan, who was in some ways like me, but in most ways, you know, sort of the anti-Matt. And sometimes his lists popped in. And uh, one day <laughs> I was talking to my agent about the next book I was going to write. And uh, she she asked me, what are the crazy things you're working on? Because she knows that I, I have all these sort of secret side projects I'm always doing. And I happen to say, oh, I have a notebook full of lists. And I think there's actually a protagonist writing them now. It doesn't seem like it's me anymore. And she said, that would be amazing. A novel written entirely in lists. And I said, that would be stupid. Stupid. Like, what a <laughs> terrible idea that would be. Uh, but then she went to my editor with the idea, didn't really tell me, but went to my editor and said, you know, Matt has a book of lists. I didn't have a book of lists. I had a notebook full of lists. That was it. But she, you know, she described it as a book of lists. And my editor said, that is a terrible idea. I will never buy a book written like that. And so I kept writing my lists and my agent kept thinking it would one day be a good book. And my editor kept thinking it was stupid. And then one day my editor left the company. She, she nice. left the publisher and I got assigned to a new editor. And uh, the new editor and I met and we decided on my next book. And, and then she said, I hear you have a book of lists. And I said, I don't have a book of lists. I have a notebook of lists, <laughs> but it's not a book. Uh, and she said, well, I would, I want, I'm not going to buy it. Doesn't, it's certainly not saleable. You know, it's not, it doesn't even sound like you could write a book really. But she said, let me see it. It'll give me a good sense of who you are as a writer. So I sent it to her. I typed up the lists and I sent it. And then three days later she called me and she said, we want this to be your next book. 
And I said, well, first of all, it's not a book. <laughs> it's a notebook <laughs> full of lists. And I said, it's not even close to being done. And she said, we know it's not close to being done, but we want you to finish it. And, you know, I wasn't really excited because I had a book that was done and ready to go. You know, it's now going to be my sixth novel instead of my fifth novel. They flipped the order. But that meant I had to write a book entirely in lists and I had to get it done and get it done on time and make it. You know, it was crazy. It, it's all worked out, and I'm very, very happy with the book. But I thought it was stupid for a long time. I was the last person to believe in this book. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> heartwarming. <laughs> no, I know. No, it, 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 it sounds like, you know, it's interesting because so much of your life has depended on chance opportunities, like, you know, that, that one editor leaving and then someone else taking over and saying, well, l- let's see the book. And, uh, and you know, yeah. things kind of fitting together. Well, you know, I also lost an editor. You know, I wrote my first two novels, and in the midst of publishing my second novel, my editor left. She got restructured into a different division, and I got assigned to a new editor, which is a terrible thing for a new novelist like me. Mm. The book ends up being orphaned, it's called, which is someone takes over your book, but they have no financial stake in your book, and they might not even like it, but they have to sort of shepherd it through the process. And that was my least successful book because it didn't have anyone supporting it. And, you know, I thought that was it for me. I actually had to find a new publisher. You know, I spoke to my agent and uh, I wrote a book that nobody wanted. My third novel that I wrote is unpublished. And I thought, that's it for me. I get to write two books and now I'm done. And my agent said, no, you just have to write the best book you will ever write in your life. And then we will find you a new publisher. And I remember thinking, oh, is that all I have to do? (laughs) Uh, But then I wrote Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, and it ended up being my most successful book. So, you know, it's chance circumstances, but, you know, along the way, there's a lot of, like, bumps and valleys and bear traps as well. So you find luck, but you also, there's there's a significant amount of unluckiness in my life as well. Sure. Uh, So I I like to think it's balancing, or I don't feel it's balanced yet, but it's working its way towards balancing. (laughs) And, And also, there's good people in your life, like your agent sounds fantastic. I am the luckiest guy in the world. Oh, you can't even imagine. I'm my agent does foreign rights now. She she was an she was a literary agent when when we signed together, but now she has left the big company and she said, you know, do you want to come with me or stay with the big company? And I said, I have to stay with you. And she sells foreign rights for publishers now. So I'm essentially her only client. So she gets her business in other places. That means that my book's published in lots and lots of countries because she has contacts in other countries that other people don't have. Yeah. And it also means when I send her an email, she responds that day, whereas lots of my author friends send an email and they hope to get a response in a month. You know, whereas, you know, I visited my agent this summer. We spent uh, we spent a day together, our kids getting to know each other. And she's been here. She's stayed at my house. So, you know, she's very much a creative friend and ally and partner of mine. That's fantastic. Connected with kind of what we we're talking about about the storytelling and these different opportunities it's brought into your life. So it's you, you discovered that it's storytelling is the reason that you're married. Could you could you <laughs> kind of tell the story behind that? Yeah, you know a lot of my stories. You <laughs> you're good. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, you know it's funny. My wife and I were teaching together uh, when I met my wife. I was married and she was engaged to be married. Hmm. Uh, our first conversation that we ever had was about her upcoming wedding because I'm also a wedding DJ mm-hmm. and I had been doing it for a long time. I'm still doing it. And we had taken students out for three days into the woods camping essentially. 
And it was while walking around a pond with a bunch of fifth graders that we had our first conversation ever, which was me giving her advice on her wedding because <laughs> I had a lot of expertise on weddings being a wedding it DJ. It is such an ironic beginning to the relationship. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, my marriage at the time was sort of ending. I had a, a short practice marriage with a woman who we just realized we weren't made for each other. And my wife eventually broke off her engagement, not for me. We didn't end up getting together for another, you know, 18 months at least. But she ended up uh, breaking off her engagement just because, again, she realized quicker than I did. It took me five years to realize I should not be with this person. She thankfully didn't get to her wedding day. She figured it out before then. So a couple months before her wedding, she broke it off, which is a very brave thing to do. Yeah. It's not easy to break off a wedding that close. Most people just go through it and hope for the best. So I give her all the credit in the world. Yeah. She sounds like an amazing woman from everything you've talked about her. She is fantastic. I had a crush on her from the moment I met her. Yeah. So I like to tell her I've been in love with her a lot longer than she's been in love with me, <laughs> which is true, sadly. <laughs> you win the competition, I guess. I did, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I, so I get my divorce and um, I'm dating someone. I'm actually dating the school psychologist in our building. <laughs> and uh, at the time, she's dating another guy. And we, we each sort of, be, we start becoming friends, but we're dating other people. And we're friends for at least a year. You know, I still have a crush on her, but she hasn't noticed me at all yet. And there's an evening when we're still just friends and there's a, there's a talent show at our school and we've decided to stay around for the talent show. I'm actually in the talent show that night with a student and she's going to stay and watch her kids in this talent show. So we have a couple hours to kill on, you know, I said, you want to go have dinner? So we go to Chili's. <laughs> which is a, not a good place to take a girl on a first date. So it was not a first date. Uh, and while we're there, you know, we're friends, but we're sort of work friends. We haven't really gotten to know each other on a personal level. And she asks me some questions about my life. And, you know, if you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you a story. And I tell her stories about my life, you know, stories that I guess people don't usually tell. You know, I'm a really open person who basically shares every single thing in his life, regardless of how private it might seem. I, I've always been that way. My friends say I live out loud. You know, when something happens, I've discovered that even when something embarrassing happens, it's a great way to get people's attention. You tell the story about the terrible, embarrassing, shameful thing you did, and it makes people laugh. And I just, I, I figured that out early on in life, that I could bring people closer to me by sharing stories. I'm, I'm curious, while you're describing that, I'm just curious if there are uh, exceptions to that you found like or if there's ways i feel like there's occasions when people will share a story and it pushes people away in some way is there is there is there something that you do that ensures that it always brings people closer there's a phrase in storytelling or actually in all performing where we say we take care of our audience yeah which is to say they should never feel uncomfortable yeah so one of the things you do is you wait an appropriate amount of time there's stories that you can't tell because Storytelling is not therapy. Uh, therapy is therapy. You can tell your stories to your therapist and that's fine. And you can tell the tell them stories that happened yesterday. But you have to allow time to pass so that people don't worry that the story that you're telling is emotionally fraught and you know doing damage to your psyche while you're telling it. So sure. so that you have to be careful for. But you know, I once I once heard a guy tell a story about bonding with his father over pornography in the basement. <laughs> 
Well, when he finished telling the story, we all wanted to take a shower, and we all hated him for telling the story. Yeah. But, you know, I made the argument on the street that night that that story could have been told in a way that would have been great. And my buddy didn't believe me, and so I went home and I crafted it, and I figured out how to tell it, and I told it as if I was the guy. And I got a bunch of my friends together, and I said, this is not my story. I'm just going to pretend to be him. You tell me if I can pull it off. And I pulled it off. There's a way to even tell that story. You know, there's, there's, you can do it. I think you can tell stories about just about anything. You know, I, I do think there's probably exceptions. You know, if you're, if you're committing a heinous crime. You <laughs> if know, you are a murderer. <laughs> right, yes. If you're a murderer, a rapist, if you're molesting children, those stories are not going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good, good clear line there. <laughs> yes. But like, there was a story that I never thought I would tell, which is, you know, when I was 19, I was the stripper for a bachelorette <laughs> party in the crew room of a McDonald's restaurant. <laughs> you know, I took all my clothes off down to a thong that they provided me. And I never thought anyone, I would tell that story to anyone. And I eventually told it to my wife and she laughed. And then we had a show come up. And she said, I want you to tell the stripper story. And I said, I can never tell that story. It's like the one story I will never tell. Like, it's so embarrassing and shameful. How? Why would I ever tell it? And she convinced <laughs> me to tell it. And so I got on stage and I told it to 200 people and they roared with laughter. And it was an incredible feeling because the moment I finished telling that story, all of the power that story held over me, the shame and the embarrassment was gone. And I just thought, that's crazy that I felt that way. And now it's completely evaporated. But, you know, I think what we always think is that people are going to not like us yeah. for making terrible decisions about, you know, embarrassing moments in our lives, or we won't like ourselves for telling it. But it, the truth is, you know, as long as, again, you haven't committed a heinous crime, when you tell those moments, people love you for them. I was in a CVS recently. I was running in to get candy for a movie. And my friends were in the car, my wife and two friends. And when I ran into the CVS, it was one of these pharmacies where, have you ever been in a store and there's like a hill in the aisle? It's usually in a city, they haven't leveled the ground. And so like the, there's just like a little incline. And I didn't, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect there to be a hill in the aisle. <laughs> and so I caught my toe on it and I fell and I scraped my chin on the industrial carpeting and huh. I knocked over this display. It was this big disaster. This woman on the end of the aisle is laughing at me. <laughs> and Literally, I hit the floor and I thought to myself, I can't wait to get back to the car and tell them what just happened. <laughs> that is how I think about all of these things now. Yeah. When something happens that's embarrassing or shameful or I make a bad decision or something ridiculous happens to me, I can't wait to tell people because I know that it makes them laugh and I know it brings them closer to me because it's an expression of vulnerability. It's opening my heart, which causes them to open their heart. So I don't fear any of those stories. You know, I, I might fear a story where I'm going to expose another human being. Sure. One of their embarrassments that, you know, I might avoid that story, but that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with them. Well, that's a really powerful outlook is being excited, even when there's a disappointment in life that you can tell that story. Yeah, I love it. Now, my wife will always say, I kind of don't care what anyone thinks. And that is also true. So that is a power I have. It's helpful. Yeah, I've just never cared. Uh, and that's not always a power either, by the way, with every, you know, it's like Superman. Like, <laughs> sure. It's a power, yep. but sometimes it kills me. Like, <laughs> there, are, <Yeah. laughs> there are moments when that has not worked out very well for me at all. Um, I totally understand that. Yeah. So so going back to your first date with your wife. Oh, so right. she asks you questions and then you uh, reply with stories. I just tell her stories, yeah. And, uh, you know, I sort of remember, I remember the night because it's the first night I ever had dinner with my wife, but uh, my future wife. 
But, you know, I, I hadn't thought anything of it. And then years later, I'm a storyteller, and someone in our presence asks my wife, when did you first fall in love with Matt? I remember thinking, like, I'm so glad that I get to hear this answer. That I'm so happy you asked it while I'm here, because I don't know, when did you first fall in love with me? And she said, the first time I fell in love with him was in a Chili's restaurant. It was our first meal, and I asked him questions, and he told me stories. And she said, I listened to his stories, and I thought, this man is unlike any human being I've ever met. And I love the way he tells stories, and I love how open and vulnerable he's being with me, and I know I want to hear more from him. I was both thrilled with that answer, but also a little annoyed because at that point I'd been telling stories and consulting and teaching on storytelling (laughs) for years. And I thought, honey, you should have told me this. Like this fits into my personal narrative brilliantly. And I remember she said to me, she said, I'm not in the business of building your personal narrative. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I found the best wife in the world uh, through storytelling, through telling her stories. Which is why probably people come to me for storytelling for dating so often now. That's a common thing that it's always guys. Guys come and they realize that what they say on the first date doesn't get them a second date. And it's it's not usually because the girl is like, oh, I thought he was good looking, but it turns out he was ugly. No, that, 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 you know what I mean? <laughs> it's usually like you said something stupid on your first date. And it's usually you just said all the wrong things, the things people don't want to hear. And you didn't say any of the right things. So I teach people that now. I'm I'm curious if the if you have a uh, success story about one of your your students who uh, he was not getting second dates and then what happened. The example that I have recently is I had a guy in one of my workshops and you know he said I I thought we had a great first date and she didn't want to see me again and I asked him what what did you talk about on your first date and he said it had been a Friday and he was an attorney and they had just closed a big deal on the at the firm like they had just landed a big client and he told her all about it, you know, to let her know how successful he was as an attorney and, you know, how he's a dependable person. And I said, I wouldn't have dinner with you again either if you came to dinner and just bragged about the client you landed. (laughs) You know, that's not, (laughs) like, that's not a hard thing to say. You know, I like to say hard things. I I like to demonstrate courage through vulnerability by saying things that most people won't say. And so I had asked him, I said, what's the worst thing that has happened to you at work, let's say in the past month? And he got really sheepish with me. But eventually he said, there was a day when I went to the bathroom and somehow while I was peeing in the urinal, I peed all over my pants. I don't know how it happened. (laughs) He's like, maybe I looked at my phone and I, I just didn't aim. Like somehow I just, it sprayed all over my pants. He described trying to like lift his crotch into the dryer, the hand dryer to like dry the pants and people would walk in and he'd pretend to be washing his hands and then he'd be drying his pants again and it wasn't working. So he took his suit coat off and he tied it around his waist and he went to his office. He stayed there the whole day. He said the office smelled vaguely of urine all day. And then he ran home with the suit coat tied around his waist. And I said, if you had told that story on your first date, you would have gotten a second date. He thought I was crazy. But, you know, I asked the people in the workshop, you know, there's probably 15 people in the workshop and a bunch of women. And I said, am I wrong? And every single person in in the workshop agreed with me that had he told that story, his chances of a second date would have 
increased dramatically because he could have demonstrated that he's funny. First of all, that's an easy story to be funny. You know, you don't even have to be a funny person to make people laugh telling that story. That's just situationally funny. And that is convenient for everyone. Mm -hmm. So you get to be funny. You get to demonstrate some vulnerability in the process. And by the way, as you're telling that story, you can certainly lay the groundwork for your success because you can point out that you're an attorney, right? You can point out that you're working in a law firm. You can point out your partners that are walking into the bathroom, you know, while you're trying to dry your pants off. But it's all in a more subtle, humble way. Yeah, you can point out that you have an office and that's your own office and that there's a secretary on the other side who you told to cancel all the appointments. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but you can be in in a vulnerable way. I often coach people on what facts you should introduce about yourself in conversations as quickly as possible. It's part of storytelling, essentially. But I always tell people, I try to tell people I'm an elementary school teacher as quickly as possible because that engenders me an enormous amount of trust and endearment because I'm a kid who I'm a, I'm a guy who works with kids. Yeah. Like how bad could I ever be? Yeah. You know? And I always mention that I'm a husband because that indicates that another human being agreed to spend her entire life with me. There has to be something to me. Wow. Right. I always point out that I have children because if you have children, you instantly feel connection with me. We understand each other on a, what it is like to be a parent level. Uh Uh-huh. I mentioned that I have cats because people are insane about their pets, especially people who own cats. Yeah. And if I bring my cats up in a conversation, at some point in the conversation, I'm suddenly the beloved cat owner. You know, I mentioned that I play golf because a lot of the guys I know play golf, but I always tell them that I play incredibly poorly. I'm the worst golfer in every single foursome, which makes them want to play golf with me because nobody (laughs) wants to play with a great golfer. And they love the fact that I play, but I'm self-deprecating. Like I play golf with guys who are terrible human beings because they're hyper competitive and they like to talk about their game. And I'm indicating to them, I love the game, but I'm terrible at it. And suddenly you're like, well, I'll play with him. Yeah. I'll play with anybody who loves the game, but admits he sucks at it. So, you know, that's the way I teach people to, you can talk about the fact that you're an attorney and that you're a partner at your company, but do it while you're peeing on your pants. <laughs> that's the way to get the information to the person while just demonstrating humor and vulnerability and authenticity and all of those things. You know, those are the stories people want to hear. Nobody wants to hear a story about your success in landing the big client. They want to hear about the time you peed on yourself in the bathroom. That's just, that's a better story. Well, I mean, some, you know, some of us have too many of those stories though. Like we've peed on ourselves like every week. No. Um. (laughs) Well, again, maybe that's one of those stories that fits in with the murderers and the rapists and the (laughs) serial peers. It's probably not good. (laughs) You know, it's funny though. I'll tell you, one of the things that happens to me as a storyteller is people tell me secrets all the time. Uh, I tell a story and it's completely unrelated to anything I just said on stage. They come up and they share a secret with me. My favorite one is recently a woman came up to me in New York after I told a story and she pulled me aside and she said to me, without even introducing herself, she said, every time I go into a friend or family's home, I have to steal something, even from my mother, every time. Wow. That was her and she and then she pulls me close and says i've never told anyone that before which demonstrates uh, you know i made a significant impact on this woman if she's willing to share that secret with me and she's never shared it with anyone else in her life yeah right I, like i connected with her five times in my life i've had women come up to me and tell me about their miscarriages and all five times i was the only person they had ever spoken to about their miscarriage five times that has happened to me that's crazy it is and so i was at a high school just a few months ago, and I was telling stories, and I was talking about how people 
will get close to you and trust you as a result of telling stories. And when I finished, these kids are coming up to me and I'm signing my book and a boy walks up to me and he gets really close to my ear and he whispers to me, he says, when I go in the bathroom, I always pee in the corner instead of the toilet. And then he walks away. (laughs) (laughs) So he's a serial peer. And I thought to myself, I hope he doesn't tell anyone else that for me. Maybe that is... Maybe that is one of the stories you don't tell. But that's a remarkable thing, too, that this kid, for whatever reason, whether he's just a terrible person or he has a genuine problem, yeah, which I've seen in students. I've seen over the years. I had a boy who couldn't go to the bathroom unless he took all his clothes off first. Like that, That's an issue for some people. Huh. So maybe he has a problem and he decided to finally trust someone with it. Or he thinks he's funny and he thought I would think it's funny, too. But either way, he trusted me with a secret. Yeah. And, and that's one of the beauties of storytelling. Because you've been so vulnerable. Exactly. And and you've shared so much, they feel comfortable sharing about themselves. Right. Yeah. It also helps. My wife always says that I'm a stranger to them. Because it's harder to share a secret with someone who like shares a cubicle with you. Because you have to see them the next day. I, I totally agree. Uh, you you talked about how they um, how five women have shared about their miscarriages. And you said that your wife had a miscarriage and you've shared that story before. Do they typically share that after they've heard that story or is it just you've shared something, any one of your stories and they'll, they'll come up to you and tell you that? I've actually never really told the story of my wife's miscarriage as a story. I've only mentioned it like when I talk about these women. No, every time that a woman has told me this, it has the story that I've told has nothing to do with even pregnancy in any way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the first time it happened to me, I was so shocked by it. I left the show. I went out to my car and I called my wife to just say, you're not going to believe what just happened. And she said, it totally makes sense to me, Matt. You know, she said, when you have a miscarriage, even though you know you shouldn't, you blame yourself. You think about all the things that maybe you did wrong that caused the miscarriage. And she said, a lot of these women, when they have miscarriages, they haven't even told anyone they're pregnant yet. So what do you do then? You have to go and like tell your friend, I was pregnant for two months but now I had a miscarriage. You sort of have to reveal your pregnancy and your miscarriage in the same sentence. And that's really hard for people to do. That's a, that's an incredibly challenging thing. So you end up walking around with this burden, like this, this thing that has happened to you and you don't know who to tell. And sometimes that, you know, you don't want to tell your parents or relatives because the pregnancy was unplanned and you weren't sure what you were going to do. And were we going to get married? Was it going to carry the baby to term? All of these things. So they end up not having anyone to tell. And then I get on the stage and I talk about stripping in a crew room of a McDonald's restaurant for a bachelorette party. (laughs) And they think, if that guy can share this, I probably can share my thing with him. Yeah. Those are just examples too. Like, I think it's crazy that there's been five women. It's just astounding to me. It's clear to me that that is a secret that a lot of people carry that they need to do something with. But I can't tell you the number of secrets I have been told over the years by people, you know, deeply personal things. And so often, almost always, they tell me, you're the first person I've ever told this to. You know, it's both an honor and sometimes in the case of like the kleptomaniac, (laughs) I pointed out to her that there's actually probably some help you could get for this problem. (laughs) I am not the person who can do that help for you. You know, but even if she doesn't get help, I did tell her you can get help. Even if she doesn't, I know how, how burdensome it can be to carry a secret in your life and not tell anyone ever. Yeah. So even if in the world, she at least knows that one other person knows her secret. I know that that lifts the burden a little bit. And so I'm happy to do that for people who want to share things with me. That's lovely. 
And they do all the time. Well, one thing that plenty of people will say is that they can't tell stories because they don't really have they don't have any stories like their lives have been pretty uninteresting and they don't they don't have them and it, it sounds like part of the reason for that is that they there are these very personal stories that they just don't feel comfortable sharing or they don't know when it's the right time to share but beyond that maybe they're just having trouble recognizing them but what do you suggest to people when they tell you ah, i just don't have any stories to tell First, I tell them they have stories to tell. Everyone does. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't have a story to tell. What they're really saying is, I don't have any crazy things that have happened to me. You know, I haven't- They haven't died. Right, exactly. They haven't died. They haven't been, you know, arrested and tried for a crime they didn't commit. They weren't homeless. All the things that have happened to me. But those are not the stories I tend to tell, you know, and I point that out very quickly. You know, a story is nothing more than a moment in your life where you achieved some realization or transformation, a moment where you either used to think one way, but now you think another, or you used to be one way, and now you are a new way. And the change can be small. It, can, it doesn't have to be big. In fact, the small stories are most often the best stories, because if I tell you the story about the time I die, it's hard for me to connect with you on a dying and coming back to life level. Like that's not something you have experienced. Therefore, it's going to be hard for me to reach into your heart. You know, if I tell you about the, the time I was arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit, again, unless this happened to you, it's going to be hard for me to reach you. But if I tell you a small story, a tiny moment in my life between my me and my wife or me and a child or me and a person in a grocery store when, you know, we had a moment or even just sort of, I suddenly discover something new that I didn't know before about myself or the world or whatever. People understand those stories better. And so the job is not to find big moments or to go have big moments. The job is to find these small moments in your life, these moments where you suddenly shift in some small but fundamental way. And that becomes the story that you should tell. What's an example of that? Because you have shared bigger stories so far. So like, what's a a smaller one that, you know, nothing big, grand or unusual happened, but it still really touches people when you tell that story? One that I love to tell. I was leaving the gym one day. Last winter, actually, it was. Yeah. I was leaving the gym and I had just worked out. And I felt great about myself. <laughs> you know, it's that, it's that sliver of time between, uh, between I have worked out and I have not yet eaten a cheeseburger, you know? So I feel like I'm better than the rest of the world. <laughs> I, I like that you define it as a sliver of time. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my way to get a cheeseburger. But, you know, I like, it, it makes me feel good because I know a lot of people don't exercise and I exercise every day. And then if I eat a cheeseburger, oh, well, but, you know, I, I feel good when I'm done exercising. And as I'm leaving the gym, my keys slip out of my hand and they land just about on my shoe. And before I can bend over to pick them up, a woman coming in the gym the other way bends over and picks them up for me and puts them in my hand. And I can't believe it. You know, and I, I, I stand there looking at my keys thinking I would have never done that for a human being. <laughs> like if I had a friend in a wheelchair, oh. I would do like the mental trigonometry required to determine, can he get his own keys or do I need to pick them up? <laughs> right. And then I sort of reflect back on all the terrible things I had done just before I arrived to the gym. You know, when I went into the grocery store to get the Gatorade, I dodged the Boy Scouts who were selling candy bars by pretending that I was on a phone call because I hate 
giving money to the Boy Scouts, even though I was a Boy Scout and the Boy Scouts saved my life. I hate that they're selling candy bars when better candy bars are available in the grocery store. And I used to tell them I don't have cash, but now they can take credit cards on their phones. So I have to pretend to be on a phone call and distracted so I can avoid them. So I did that. And then um, when I arrived at the gym, I was walking in and there was another woman coming in, you know, towards the door, you know, at an angle. And I realized doing some more mental trigonometry that I was going to have to hold the door for this woman. And I hate that because I always feel like I'm ahead of you in life right now, lady, because I got up earlier than you or I, I ate my breakfast faster than you or I took a better route to the gym. And now I have to like stall my life and allow you to catch up. And I hate doing that. I hate holding the door for people who are behind me. And so rather than holding the door, I quickened my pace so that the time <laughs> that I arrived at the door was far enough away from the time she would arrive that it didn't necessitate me op- holding the door for her. <laughs> and then when I was done working out, I had to wipe down the machine, which I hate, because I just feel like I've done God's work and now I have to wipe down this machine. And I don't care if anyone ever wipes a machine down. you know. And according to the golden rule, you do unto others as you would have done unto you. I don't want anyone to wipe down the machine. So therefore, according to the golden rule, I should not wipe down the machine for anyone else because I'm supposed to give them what I want, right? Absolutely. Uh, Which is a terrible rule, by the way. The the real rule is you should do unto others as you think you want them done. Because the what you want and what someone else wants is an entirely different thing. It's the platinum rule we're supposed to follow. But anyway, I hate wiping down the machine. So what I do, honestly... (laughs) is I wipe down the machine because I I know I'm supposed to and someone might notice that I'm not, but I do a passive aggressive job at it. I like lightly wipe down the machine. I don't do a good job on purpose. It's my silent protest for having to wipe down the machine. I did all of those things and then I drop my keys on my foot and a woman picks up my keys. And so I end up standing there in front of the smoothie bar thinking I'm a terrible person. I wouldn't even pick up the keys for a woman who dropped them on her shoe, but she did it for me. You know, and all those rotten things that I did before that. And it's just a, it's a moment where I realize I'm pretty selfish. I'm either going to fix myself or continue to be selfish. And a couple of days later, I pull into the gym and it's pouring out. And I hate this because my gym is always filled with cars and I have to park a million miles away. But then the spot next to the doors opens up. The person's backing out and I'm going to get the best spot in the lot. I'm really excited about it. And I'm waiting for the person to back out when I see headlights in my rear view mirror, someone waiting behind me and I think, sucker, you're going to be the one that gets wet. And then I look back down and I see my damn keys hanging out of the ignition. And I think about the woman who dropped the keys, you know, who picked up my dropped keys. Yeah. And then I, when the spot's available, I drive by it and I let the person behind me have it, you know, probably a serial killer, but they can have the spot (laughs) and I get all wet. Like I know I'm gonna, and it doesn't mean I'm a better person because I still dodge the boy scouts and I still hate holding doors for people. And I still don't do a good job of wiping down machines when I'm done with them. (laughs) But when I'm thinking about that woman, especially when I'm holding keys, I, I try to be a slightly better person. And that's a simple story. You know, if I tell the, if I tell you that real story, you know, that one, a moth story slam, everyone loved it, but nothing happens. All that happens is I drop my keys, a woman picks them up and I go, oh my God, that was so nice considering everything I've done today. <laughs> yeah. That's all it was, right? But you would never notice because there's just so much texture there. There's so much going on. Right. Well, the, what happens to people is though, they don't notice that a story even happened. 
You know, when I got home that night, my wife was making dinner and I was so excited because I knew it was a story. Sometimes I don't know that something happened as a story yet. It takes some reflection. But that one, I came home and I said, honey, I dropped my keys on my foot and a woman picked them up. It means I'm terrible. And she went, okay, that's great. We're having dinner. <laughs> now, the the other part about me pulling into the pulling in and, you know, letting the person have the spot hadn't even happened yet. Even if that had never happened, the story's still good without it. I just, I knew it was great because I was going to be able to tell everyone I was terrible. And everyone is terrible at some point in their day or at some point in their week. We all make bad decisions. We're all selfish in some way. So I knew it would connect with people right away. I knew it would be funny. I knew I was going to get to admit to something most people don't admit to, which means I get to be vulnerable on stage and open my heart to people. I just knew it was going to be a super successful story. And it's small. You know, I was arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit, and I've never told the story of my trial. My friends in storytelling, they're like, how could you not tell the story of your trial yet? And I say, I'm going to get to it, but... I got things like keys falling on my shoes and women <laughs> picking them up. And that's honestly how I feel. I think, why would I tell that big trial story when I can tell this little story? That is a very courageous story to tell in a way, because, you know, in the trial story, like a crime you didn't commit, you're the victim there. But in this case, you're kind of realizing that you're the bad guy. And that's a hard thing for most people to, to tell that story and, and go like, yeah, I, I realized how selfish I am. Well, it, it's never been hard for me. So I always tell people it doesn't require courage for me. Uh, a woman who takes my workshops often atten attends my shows. She once said in a workshop, she said, you're the most courageous person I've ever met. And I say, no, I'm not because I can just do this. <laughs> like, I don't <laughs> care what other people think. I've been doing this all my life. But I acknowledge it's very courageous for many people. Everyone basically but me is what I say. But what I also say is all you have to do is do it once. You get on stage and you tell a story like that and you get the response from an audience, which I promise you will get, which will be appreciation and love. And you'll step off the stage and people will come and talk to you and they will share the secrets of their miscarriages with you. And you will quickly understand that doing it makes a lot of sense. And it's a, it's a difficult thing to understand unless you do it once and you get the response. But once you get the response, you quickly understand, oh, I can say almost anything up here as long as I'm being vulnerable and honest and authentic, as long as I'm not bragging. You know, I can tell them all the stupid things I've done, all of my selfish decisions. And that's how I, that's how I treat stories. I, you know, the trial is going to be a wonderful story that I tell someday, but Meanwhile, you know, some guy at a beach recently told me that the shovel that I knew was my son's was his. And we had a moment, you know, and I didn't make a great decision. I was not my best myself. And I told that story to want a story slam too, because, you know, again, I'm sitting on these giant stories that I'm waiting to tell, but I'd rather tell about the little encounter I had with the, the shovel on the beach. You know, why would I ever tell my story of the trial if I have these little moments to share instead? People have to find those moments, though. That's the thing. You have to be able to find them. You have to look for them. And yes. Well, I, I do homework for life. It's a process, which we don't need to get into. But if you just Google the phrase homework for life, um, I do a TED Talk on it, and it will change your life. It will 100% honestly change your life. There is not a day, without an exaggeration, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get an email from someone who is writing to me and saying, I now do homework for life, and it has changed my life. Every single day I get an email 
from someone around the world telling me that. So you should go and do that, and then you'll find stories. Even if you don't want to tell stories, Homework for Life will change the way you look at your life. I promise you. So ever since I first read your book a year and a half ago, I think, I've been I've been doing that uh, for the most part, which is basically just writing down some notes on your day on, on what happened, any, any kind of potential stories there. And it is really amazing because it's, it's like if you uh, if you let any time go by before you do it, you will forget what has happened. Like it, it's really hard to remember what happened a few days ago. Often, unless it was like some huge thing, but when you consistently write down what's going on in your life, it really does give you so much more perspective and and so much more of a view of oh yeah, like. There are all these like fascinating things that have gone on that I would have forgotten if I hadn't written it down. Yeah. And, you know, the key part, I think, is that when I tell people to write it down, you know, I do it in an Excel spreadsheet, which is and it's two columns. It's the date. And then I stretch the B column across the screen. And that's as much space as I give myself to write down whatever moment I want to write down from the day. Because I think if we start to think about writing stories, we're not going to do it. Yeah. That's just too much for anybody. But if I tell you, you have to fill a line of an Excel spreadsheet with a moment from your day that you think is the most story worthy, even if it's not story worthy, because the, the way be- we become good at finding moments is on the days when there are no moments to be found. Yeah. When we have to force ourselves to find something to write down, those are the best days because those are the days you're exercising that muscle. But if you just do that, it just... It has to be short, a few sentences about your day, something. You know, if I look at my homework for life for today, right? I I used to do mine in the evening. Now I do it throughout the day. Whenever something happens, I just go to my spreadsheet. Hmm. I told you today's my wife's birthday. Yeah. And so the moment I have so far, I probably have a few more to add to the list. At the end of the day, I'll do that. But the one I wrote down this morning, I wrote, I go upstairs to get some workout clothing and forget to say happy birthday to Alicia. And now she thinks I forgot it's her birthday. No amount of convincing will change her mind, I'm sure. That's all I wrote, right? So I go upstairs, I see my wife for the first time. I say, hey, honey, I grab the workout clothes, I go downstairs. I go back upstairs later to say goodbye to her and say happy birthday. And she says, you forgot the first time you came up that it was my birthday, didn't you? And I'm like, no, I didn't. I was just sort of focused on getting my workout clothing. But no, she'll never believe me and I know it. And (laughs) that's the moment that was the most story worthy at that point during the day. And it was a moment I didn't want to forget because I kind of think I could tell a story about that, yeah. about the dynamics of a marriage where the woman who loves you and who you love sometimes will just never believe you. And how in my marriage, I always seem to be sort of explaining what I said. Like, no, that's not what I meant is a phrase I have to use all the time. And it occurs to me, my wife never has to say that. Or maybe she never feels the need to. <laughs> you know, I don't know which one it is. Like, am I always getting in trouble and saying, no, no, that's not what I meant? Or is she always getting in trouble, but just not caring? You know, when I go, well, that was rude. She goes, uh-huh, and walks away. Whereas I would be going, <laughs> right? The opposite. She goes, that was rude. I go, no, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant was, you know, but that's a dynamic I think I could capture in a story. But even if I couldn't, my homework for life for the day before today, all it says is, Charlie in the car tells me he loves his life. My son driving around, he said, Dad, I love my life. That'll never be a story, but that's not going to be a moment I ever want to forget. Yeah. So they're not long entries. They're just simple little things. But what happens is over time, if you do it, you start to discover that your life is full of stories, stories that you don't see. Or if you do see them, you just throw them away like trash. You don't even save them. You're right. Three days after a day has passed, you will not remember that day anymore. You know, or if I just asked you, tell me everything you remember from 2005, 
you're doomed. You might, (laughs) right? You probably have maybe 10 things if you're lucky and you probably have to look at a calendar. And if you weren't getting married or weren't buying a house or weren't changing jobs, you're probably screwed. You've got nothing. You know, I don't have 2005, unfortunately, because I haven't been doing it that long. But for every year that I've been doing homework for life, I'm on seven years now. I have a moment from every day. I haven't lost a day. Yeah, It's a beautiful thing. And if you want to tell stories, it's the best way to find them. What is one tip? Because I mean, a lot a lot of people try and tell stories and, and sometimes they succeed more than at others. And you've given some some really good tips about like finding stories and what stories to tell. What is one really powerful tip that you'd suggest to people? Like if you want to become a better storyteller, here is the one thing you should change right now. The one thing is that people don't understand what stories are. Most people think stories are stuff that happened to us over the course of time. You know, those are the crazy things that happen to us. There are vacations. Uh, there when you get home and your spouse says, how, you, how was your day? And you begin giving an accounting of what happened throughout the day. Nobody wants that. A story is a moment of realization or transformation. It is a singular moment in your life when at one, one moment you used to think one thing, but now you think another. Or one moment you used to be one kind of person, but you are, you are now another. If you tell stories about your moments of realization or transformation, people are going to care about your stories because those are the things that people can connect to and understand. If you tell your crazy drinking story or you tell your story about your vacation or just stuff that happened, you know, I went on a fishing trip and you just tell them everything that happened on the fishing trip. That's not a story. It's not going to stay with people. And it's probably ultimately going to bore them, even if there's exciting things happening. Yeah. But if you can tell a simple story, like the moment I had this morning where I realized, my God, I think that I explain stuff all the time to my wife because I'm getting in trouble and I don't think she really cares when she's in trouble with me, right? That instantly, for anyone who's married, they will laugh. And that laughter is the laughter of acknowledgement that that is a truth. And now we stand a little closer together. And it really shows itself in how you told it because a lot of people would say like, yeah, so like I went up this morning and I you know, I said hello to my wife while I was grabbing my stuff. And then later on, I came up and she was like, you forgot my ber- my birthday. And I didn't, you know, I, I, I and they would like maybe try to justify or whatnot. They just describe the facts, but they don't have have that extra step of going like, but this is something like I realized about, you know, this situation. This is something about I realized about our relationship right. that takes it to a deeper level that is meaningful. Yes. Yeah. And you're not going to be able to do that right away when you start this process, you won't see these things as quickly as I do. You know, now I see them and I go, Oh, that's a story. Oh, that's a story. I see them right away. But originally in the beginning, six or seven years ago, I didn't always see them right away. I'd write them down and I just move on. And then what happens is I eventually go back and I reflect upon them and I, I go through lists, which I love doing. Cause it's like reliving your life day by day. It's really fun. And then I'll suddenly see stories. I'll go, Oh my gosh, look at that. I, that's a moment where I changed. That's a real thing that happened to me. And those become the stories that you tell. You could see how that's a little thing, right? Rather than telling the story of my trial, I'm going to tell the story about the time my wife thought I forgot her birthday, but I didn't. And that is going to be a better story to tell than the story of the trial. If you want to learn more about Matthew, visit matthewdix.com. That's Matthew with two T's. At matthewdix.com, you can find links to all of his social media profiles, listen to his podcast, and learn about his storytelling workshops, which I've attended and highly recommend.
Next week, former FBI Special Agent John Yonarelli gives us a sneak peek behind the scenes of the FBI. You'll learn how to access the crime-ridden underbelly of the internet, the darknet, how to track down a child who's been missing for nearly a decade, and how to protect yourself from cyber thieves who can trick you out of thousands or even millions of dollars in seconds. Plus, you'll hear what happens when the FBI's top experts get tricked. Has anyone ever tried to commit a cybercrime against you? Yes. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have had uh, my credit cards compromised. Thank you.